Welcome to Value Added, the real estate podcast where we speak with the brightest minds in the world of real estate who provide, create, and realize value in an ever-changing market. If you're a real estate professional delivering value to your clients, an investor creating value not seen by others, or a busy professional who passively invests in real estate to grow the value of their hard-earned dollar, then you're in the right place. And now your host, Nick Walters. Hey gang, welcome to this week's episode of Value Added, the real estate podcast. Today I have my good buddy on, Graham Jones. Graham is the co-founder of GRJ. They are a New York City-based real estate development and investment firm. They invest in multifamily, mixed-use, and hotel assets around the country. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Graham Jones, welcome to the show. How are you? Good to be here. I'm good. How are you? Give the listeners a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. I was a government major in college, and I think, to be candid, that being a real estate developer was probably the last thing I ever thought I would do in life because it just it wasn't the path I was on in high school and college. And I figured that I, whatever I did in life, I wanted to be happy at. And I felt if I was happy doing what I was doing, that success would follow. And for me, that always was, I figured it might have been being a lawyer, doing some sort of governmental thing. But my senior year in college, I interned at the White House. And while it was a great experience, um, and it was really cool to be down there at the nerve center, it just wasn't my cup of tea for what I saw myself doing long term. I came back up to New York and I started sending my resume out to everybody uh, who I knew. And I got very lucky with a startup real estate private equity firm that was looking to bring on an analyst. I really didn't know much about real estate at the time, let alone uh, how to structure deals from a, a debt and equity standpoint or, or even really how to value or buy buildings. I worked there for about three years. It was a great experience, part of a small team. And the financial crisis happened and I actually got fired and let go. I was still in my 20s. I didn't have a job. I didn't know. I thought the world was, was ending. But in hindsight, that, that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it really, that was the impetus for my brother and I getting together and really starting and, and starting GRJ. We, we had seen that uh, having worked at that firm for about three years, I really became uh, just fascinated with with everything that goes on t into buying a real estate deal, structuring a deal, um, how to add value to to buildings that you buy. And I thought that we were both we were both in New York. I was my brother was finishing up his MBA at Fordham. I was working and then going to graduate school in the evening at NYU, getting my master's in real estate. There was no real business plan that we put together. We just said, look, this will be a great time for us to try to buy a building because we thought that pricing was gonna pricing was really coming down and. A lot of people, rightfully so, during that time were very scared. And we try to always be contrarian with how we think. And we said, well, hey, when everyone's fearful, now it's the time for us to try to get in the game and see if we can get a deal done. That was how we got started. It took us about almost a year to find our first building to buy. I, I had run out of money and I had to move home with my parents. Once we got the taste of being out there like on our own and trying to build a business on our own, I said to myself, oh, there's no way I can go back and work for anyone else ever again. The first building we bought, 227 East 89th Street, uh, it was a mid-block 20-unit building on the Upper East Side. Walk up, when it had sort of fallen into our lap, we, we thought it was a perfect building to buy, and it all, just, it all just went from there. It's the law of the first deal, right? Yeah, first deal is always the most, uh, is always the most important deal because it sets the tone for everything. That's right. 
but you and your brother have been very patient investors. Very patient, mm -hmm. very picky buyers. I think that's, that's really been one of the reasons why we've had the success that we've had because we're, we're not the kind of guys that'll ever do a deal just, just for the sake of doing a deal. For us, the criteria is we have to buy the building, the property at a good basis, whether it's a price per square foot, a price per unit, price per key, depending on what asset class it's in. We typically like to buy from mom and pop owners or, or, or sellers who are completely absentee because that's how we've been able to extract the most value. And what I mean by that is buying properties that have rents that are well below market that can be significantly increased after an extensive rehab to, uh, to a building, both from a, a unit renovation and common area perspective. It was about a decade that you and your brother were in business last summer's new legislation that was put in place that significantly impacted nearly every other value-add investor out there in, in the five boroughs. Walk us through how the, the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act impacted your overall business plan and the ways that you've pivoted since then? I don't think that anyone at the time ever thought that such an ad, a law that is so adverse to owners and real estate in general would ever be signed into law. New York State in the legislature has shifted very far to the left and landlords and developers uh, in New York City have a bullseye on their back right now. I thought it was a completely irresponsible piece of legislation. Um, I'm glad to see that there are a number of lawsuits that were filed against it and that are challenging it in, in the federal court system. I do believe the law will be undone uh, in, in, in the court system. I think from our perspective, what it did was it took away an owner's uh, incentive to invest any capital into, the, uh, into these buildings just for the sake of preserving uh, rent stabilization. You know, owners in New York do not buy on current cash flow. You buy on future cash flow and where you can take an asset. And one of the beauties of, uh, of the business is, is there's a lot of value that you can unlock by buying these buildings that have been mismanaged, that have old apartments, you get natural turnover every single year. And for us, we will gut renovate those units, add bedrooms to the units. We're actually creating affordable housing, which is something that people don't seem to understand in uh, giving amenities to tenants that are amenities you would find in, 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 in any high rise uh, or, or, uh, or luxury doorman building in, in, the city, in the city of Brooklyn. And we were incentivized to do that because the return on that invested capital was, was very high and, the, and, and how much value that would unlock on the overall valuation of your building. And what was done now totally took away an, an owner's incentive to, to, to do that. You can only invest uh, $15,000. You can raise the rent $89. You're going to have to spend $100,000 to at least to, to, to bring that unit up to today's standards. Uh, and, and that's new plumbing, that's new electric. Uh, it's a complete gut renovation for what we're doing. And I know a lot of other owners are doing as well in the city is any, any old apartment that we get back, we're just, we're keeping vacant. We've, we've locked the doors. Uh, we're not touching it. I can tell you in some of our buildings, we're losing, we're, we're losing probably $200,000 a year in annual revenue that we could achieve on a renovated basis uh, for those units as a result of, of this law. And there was no compensation given to owners as a result of this by the legislature. I do believe that in time it will be overturned in, in the courts because it is a taking of private property without compensation. Warehousing units, right? Where are you just keeping the lights off? And that's what everybody's doing. And the impact that that's had, it's been a cascading effect in terms of the multifamily market has basically ground to an absolute halt. 
the city depends on revenue from these transactions. That's what a lot of people don't get between the transfer taxes and the mortgage reporting taxes. That's a huge bucket of cash that goes into the city's coffers. And now people are just, a lot of people aren't buying because they're just, and understandably, we're not buying in New York anymore because of the political risk associated with that. So whereas we would say have an exit, a clearly defined exit from these buildings in you know a five to six year period, whether it's through a through a through a large refinance or, or even or even a sale, has gone completely by the wayside now, and it's really not a, a fun position to be in. Uh, lenders are have completely repriced the risk, and buyers are completely repricing how they acquire uh, apartment buildings in. Uh, in Manhattan and the boroughs. Before June of 2019, the bulk of your holdings were primarily yeah. Manhattan and Brooklyn, um, yeah. but you also own some assets outside of the city. One deal I, I want to touch on that I know that you were uh, involved in is 114, 111 units in, in Tampa uh, that you had under contract and you were about to close when coronavirus made landfall in the United States. Walk us through what steps you've taken to make this deal move forward since coronavirus. Our lender before, uh, a couple of days before closing, was obviously rightfully very so very concerned about the the macro state of things as a result of, uh, of COVID and had basically informed us that um, proceeds were not going to be what we had initially expected. After a few conversations with the, with, with, with the seller, we couldn't really resolve it. So we were forced into, uh, we, we, we were forced to litigate. It's still in litigation right now. I hope it gets resolved shortly, but there's no, there's no guarantee on that. Being in New York and coming from sort of ground zero of this virus, that not only from an, an owner developer standpoint, but also from a, from a capital standpoint, whether it's debt or equity, I think we have a much different view of how things, of, of how things are than say folks in, in different states where the impact has not been as, uh, as great. One of the things we've seen in our buildings here in the city, in April collections were pretty good across the whole. We'll see what happens in May. And obviously any, any type of capital, whether it's debt or equity, is going to be very concerned about collections going forward. And that obviously has a big impact on the value of, a, of an asset. So what you agreed to pay for something uh, three months ago. It's very hard to underwrite a deal when we don't know what the collections are, are going to be in the next six months. Yeah. Oh, oh absolutely. And lender, I will t I'll tell you that a lot of lenders are requiring escrows of, of up to a year's worth of escrows to ensure that there's not going to be any um, issue with them, with them getting paid or any forbearance requests. I think you're going to see a lot of forbearance requests uh, continue to increase going forward, both, on, both for balance sheet lenders and for CMBS. Uh, holders as well. Let's go back to your core strategy of being a value-add investor. What does value mean to you in your business? I sort of look at it as, as two ways. There's value that we have to our investors and there's value that we bring to a, to a building. I always view us as an opportunistic group. And one of the best things about uh, lenders and equity investing with us is that we will bring them stuff that they have not seen. That, that there's a clear pathway to, to, to value in the sense of buying an asset at a very good price, uh, having, a, having a very, very low rent roll relative to, to where the market is. And we are, with, the, with the team that we have at GRJ, with myself, my brother, with Antonio, with Darren, you know, we, our ability to execute on these deals is, it has, become, has become like clockwork. I think that with, with, uh, with, what, we, with what we have bought 
using New York right now as, as the main example, there was a lot of opportunity to buy buildings in neighborhoods that were that were gentrifying or were changing or were changing very fast, that had a lot of influx of people who were priced out of Manhattan, who wanted to move further out into Brooklyn. And we were able to buy buildings in those neighborhoods at was very attractive pricing. We like to be close to the subways. We like, we'd like to buy buildings that had a good mix of rent stabilized and free market apartments. It was a good hedge and the free market units, the buildings with the free market units that we would buy would be very, would be low relative to market because our investment uh, thesis was always to buy buildings and, and, and add bedrooms. And so we would convert a one bedroom to a two bedroom, a two bedroom to a three bedroom, a three bedroom to a four bedroom. We would give, we give all of our tenants uh, in those renovated apartments uh, all the finishes you would find in a uh, in a brand new apartment building, but they don't have to. They they only pay a portion of the rent, so it becomes economical for them. So if the rent's a dollar and you have four and you have four people living in a four bedroom apartment, each person theoretically will only pay twenty five cents, and that's a way we found that a lot of our a lot of our tenant base of new tenants is uh, is is students, graduate students, young professionals. And a lot of them have uh, have come in with guarantors, and 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 that back to your question about value, we have found that that is a really amazing way for us to unlock a lot of value from these from these buildings. Are you implementing that strategy into these other markets outside of New York City? Yes, but it's the, the renovations that we're doing outside of the city, for example, uh, on the asset in Florida we're going to be buying are much more cosmetic in nature. The, the rent pops are anywhere from 20 to 25% over the previous in-place rents. Whereas in New York, in certain buildings, we've averaged rent increases of over 150 to 200%. That's just a major, that's just a major delta. So for us, dollars in have to equal dollars out. So we will, we don't have a customized rehab plan. It varies by market. It varies by, by property location. And most importantly, where the in-place in place rents are versus where the market rents are. So if we're investing, let's say, $100,000 into a, a, a unit in, Man, in Manhattan, a book on the gut renovate, say in Florida, we'll invest seven to $10,000. So it's a much, much more limited scope of work. Let's take a few minutes to walk through one of your past deals where you were able to create significant value out of the point when you acquired the asset. I always go back to the first, for the first, building that we ever bought, 227 East 89th Street, because that was sort of the, the, the kickoff for, for us, for where we were able to get to where we are today and to really lay the groundwork to build the business. The seller who we bought the building from had apparently never been to the building before. And he was not in the real estate business, he was in the embroidery business. And so this was just, a, I guess, a place for him to park some cash. When we got in there, the units, the, the layouts of the units were not were not nearly optimal for what the for what for, for what they could be, and we were sort of scratching our head because we're like this guy is sitting on what, what we believe to be a gold mine after after the renovation was done, but maybe he just didn't see the he didn't he didn't see the value. So we bought that building for three and a half million dollars. We were able to refinance out after eighteen months all the equity, and then we sold it another two years later for twelve and a half million. But that was not just by us sitting back and not doing anything. We had gut renovated pretty much every single unit in the building. We had, we, had, we, had done, we had done the bedroom conversions and we had created a really good product that, a lot, that, that had that the demand exceeded our expectations. Uh, the Upper East Side, you know, at the time people were living there and I get, because it was more cost effective. It was cheaper than living in, in the more primer parts of Manhattan. 
And we were achieving record rents on a price per square foot basis based on the product that we were delivering to the market. The light bulb went off in our head that say, hey, and we said to ourselves, hey, we need to find more buildings like this to, to, to acquire because look how much value we've, we've created. Now, people can say, well, you timed it right and you, you, wrote, you wrote it up and up market and yeah maybe maybe we did but time but timing in life is everything the rent roll that from where we bought the property versus we, we more than doubled the rent roll from the time we sold it and so it was a it was a great way for us to unlock a ton of value on our first deal and not only that get our systems in place but start to really build out our team it's amazing how you can go into an opportunity and uncover things that maybe other investors missed or your strategy fits in better yeah. with other investor strategies with regards to a value add play. I think if you have, if you go in, you can't, my experience in this business has been, you can't expect to unlock value from buildings by not rolling up your sleeves. You got to roll up your sleeves and you got to be willing to do the work. We, there were times when either myself or my brother had to be at the building late at night dealing with something with super, it, dealing with tenants in New York is, is never is never an easy thing. It's always a challenge. Uh, doing gut renovation work in a building that's partially occupied is, is an even bigger challenge. And a lot of people don't want to deal with those headaches. We always believed in ourselves. If we could execute on the strategy and the, and the business plan, that that would lead to subsequent investments in this in this uh, in this space. Let's get into the hard hitting questions. <laughs> Fire away. Being being a boxer, <laughs> you appreciate that. Yes, absolutely. What is your why? My why is getting up every day, trying to build the best business that I can, trying to build the best culture that I can, trying to build the best team that I can. And I feel that if I can do that, whether my business is real estate or, or, or any other thing, forget me, forget my brother, the whole team will be, will be successful. And that will allow us to grow considerably more than if we, if, if, if we operated any, uh, any differently. So I mean, I love my business. I love real estate as a business. I love creating and I love, I love designing and that's a lot of fun. But my main why is I almost feel like I'm a, like I'm a coach, to be honest. I feel like we're back at, we're back at Kent and all, the, and all the influences that I had at Kent, like the, the mentors and my athletic coaches who pushed me and drove me to become the best version of myself that I can, I try to employ that now with, with the team that I have. That's really that is my why. It's, it's almost just watching. It's almost it's almost just watching and fostering development of your uh, and character development of your team. Because as as people grow and they become more comfortable together and working together, your business is naturally going to grow. Besides your alarm clock, what gets you out of bed in the morning? I'm always looking to become the best version of myself that I can. That's a challenge, obviously, in and of itself. But building my business over the last ten years with my brother and and going through all the ups and the downs and having, and having the arrows in your back, it makes you very, very resilient. And uh, that, I, I, love, I love those challenges. I, I love solving those challenges. I love dealing with the challenges. That's, you know, that's really what gets me out of bed every day. What book have you read recently that has impacted you the most? I'm about halfway through a book right now uh, called The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. The subtitle is The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups. And it draws from the business world, maybe SEALs, uh, other military examples for how groups come together to form a cohesive unit where there's trust, where there's vulnerability, and where everybody can just go out and execute. Not for themselves, but for the betterment of the group and the team. And I think that uh, I try to read a lot of books about 
about teamwork and about culture because as I'm still building my business, that is obviously vitally important for me. I'd like to build a business that in 40 years from now is still around. How do you like to blow off steam? I love to exercise and go to the gym. I like to travel. I'm, I'm a big fan of going to, uh, to the beach, to the islands. Uh, love the warm weather. Those are, those are my main ways of uh, <laughs> blowing off steam. Staying active. How do you like to pay it forward? The best way that I can pay it forward at this point in my life is to, uh, is to try to help other people who are in the same spot or thinking about going to the same spot where I was 10, 11 years ago. I didn't know what I was doing when I was first starting my business. I, I really, I had no clue. We had, we had a lot of help and guidance along the way, but I, I like to pay it forward now by just by trying to be a resource or an outlet for people who are looking for advice or who are looking to pick my brain about certain things. That's the best way that I can, uh, that I can, that I can, that I can do it. Finally, how can our listeners learn more about you? The best way is they can just contact me directly. I'm pretty much an open book. I'm happy to talk to and, and uh, speak to anyone who is, is looking for uh, any, any advice and guidance. I have an Instagram page. I don't really, I don't have a lot of followers, but uh, <laughs> that's another way. Very active. <laughs> you, you put out, you put out good content. I try to, I try to put out good vibes. That's probably the best way that, uh, that people can contact me either directly through email, um, social media. I'm, I'm, I'm always accessible. Graham Jones. That's a wrap. Thanks for adding your value today. No problem. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to leave a rating and a review, which will help us introduce the podcast to other listeners. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which will give you access to other episodes you may have missed. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you next week.